the church family, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 23 in just a few minutes. It's going to take me a while to get there. But I would love for you to have your copy of God's Word open to Luke 23 and then towards the very end of the message, and I kid you not, really towards the very end of the message, Revelation chapter 20. Just some verses I want you to see with your Bibles open and with your own eyes rather than just listening to me. I think it's a little more powerful, not only when you listen to me, but when you see God's Word for itself with your own eyes. So, um, so do me the blessing, if you will, Luke chapter 23, but then also be prepared to go to Revelation chapter 20. As Robert said a few minutes ago, and if you looked at our bulletin, uh, this is uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, it is hard to believe that we're here. It seems like just a few days ago we were at Christmas. At least it does for me. Time really does fly the older you get, and the older I get, the more that really seems true. And some of y'all know what I'm talking about, right? But today is Psalm, Palm Sunday, rather, and the beginning of Holy Week. And, and, and with that in mind, and if you read our bulletin, um, just know that for us adults, uh, I would encourage you not to be here on Wednesday night unless you want to take part in the praise team practice. But on Thursday night, uh, right here, we will have a Monday Thursday service, and it's going to be a time of communion and a reflection, if you will, on what Christ did for us on Calvary's cross. So it's just going to be a unique time of song, scripture, a brief message, and communion as well as we think about the substitute of our Savior who went to the cross for me and for you. Uh, you know, for many of us in the community of faith, I think we all know what Palm Sunday is, but I never want to assume that everybody that's in church, especially if you're like me, if you grew up in the Baptist tradition, uh, you may not know what Palm Sunday happens to be or really the events of, of Holy Week. So the question I have in my notes is to ask you, what is Palm Sunday? Because I know that some, some of y'all really want to answer that question, right? What is Palm Sunday? And of course, I'm being a little bit facetious, if you will. But a week before Jesus was crucified, before he went into the city of Jerusalem, this is what Palm Sunday is all about. This is what we see. He's on the Mount of Olives, and, um, and I hope you can kind of make that out. If you see the gold dome there that is the dome of the rock and if you're looking at my slide over here that i'm facing you see the dome of the rock there and uh, that is where the temple uh, once stood uh, you can almost see the precipice there of the old city of jerusalem if you can see my little green laser pointer there uh, that is where we believe satan took jesus and tempted him to cast himself off there the highest point there in jerusalem in the old city was right where i just pointed uh, if you're looking, if you're, where, well, of course, I, I took this picture, by the way. That's why it's so bad. But um, so we don't have Mallory taking pictures for us because she's a whole lot better photographer than I am. But if you're on the Mount of Olives, you're looking down, and that may not look like you are looking down, but you really are looking down into the, the Kidron Valley up into the city of Jerusalem. And in, in all likelihood, somewhere in that vicinity is where Jesus stood for the text that we're about to read and for the sermon that we're about to get into. He's on the Mount of Olives and all of that in between the Kidron Valley, there's hardly any green space whatsoever. You see the trees there, but it's not many. What you really see there is, is, is a cemetery. Now you see burial plots, but that's where Jesus was on the Mount of Olives. And then you come down off the Mount of Olives and um, uh, some of you know some Southern Baptist history. That's Frank Page there and... Uh, and this is our tour guide, uh, Zahn, I believe is his name. I may be mispronouncing it, but that's the best my Hebrew can do. And you're going down a traditional route off the Mount of Olives. And just think, this could have been the exact route, Todd, that Jesus took 
when he came down off the mountain to go up again into Jerusalem because whenever you go regardless of where you are around the holy city you're always going up so you're coming down off the Mount of Olives you're going into Jerusalem there and then as you continue to go down uh, you kind of level out there in in the valley of the Kidron Valley uh, you're looking see how you see and you're looking straight up and you're looking straight up at the eastern gate there where scriptures foretells us that one day Jesus will go back through the eastern gate as the conquering Messiah so you're at the very bottom of the Kidron Valley if you will you're looking up into Jerusalem so if you're um if you're on your way up into Jerusalem one of the things that you will pass as our Savior passed would be the Garden of Gethsemane and those are olive trees and they're still and, and I'll just be honest with you I used to think there was a whole lot more olive trees than that Amy but that's just some of them and I wanted so bad to touch them but um but that was a no-no and I didn't want to be arrested so um which is a good thing for a preacher right you don't want to be arrested but but those are some olive trees there and, uh, and that's where Jesus was at the Garden of Gethsemane. And then, of course, he goes into uh, Jerusalem. And when he goes into Jerusalem, you have the Eastern Gate. And uh, you say, well, wait a minute. It looks like it's, uh, it's been closed in. And you are exactly correct. It's closed in uh, because the Muslims back in around 1500 A.D. thought, well, you know what? We're going to keep the Jewish Messiah out whenever he comes back. We're going to put up this stone structure there. And ain't no way he's going to get in there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm glad y'all are laughing at that too because there ain't nothing that man can do to keep Jesus out, right? I mean, he's kind of in control. Whether, Yeah, y'all give him a praise this morning. So that is what Jesus was facing and he went into the eastern gate and people were crying out, many people were crying out, Hosanna. Some were crying out, Hosanna, but what was kind of sad to realize is that not only were some crying out, Hosanna, and I believe, and, and others believe like me, and you probably are in this camp with me, that many, if not all of the ones crying out, Hosanna, you know, save us, Lord, you know, just rendering praise to the great I am. We believe that those individuals, those Jewish folks, those followers of Christ were from the area of Galilee where Jesus lived and lived among them. Can y'all imagine, can I go off on a tangent like I haven't already? Can y'all imagine just like if y'all were living in Galilee with Jesus when his ministry was just going full swing and maybe just meeting at the coffee shop with him over some coffee. I mean, he rubbed shoulders. He didn't just stay in the Holy of Holies, if you will. He didn't just stay beside himself. He got his hands dirty, and he was in a relationship with people there all around Galilee, and those people loved him, and they saw all these miracles, and they were, they were privy like none other to the teachings of Jesus, and they loved Jesus. And it's those Jewish people, I believe, that... that that laid down their coats before him, that, that waved the palm branches, if you will, shouting, you know, praises to him as he rode in, not as a conquering military leader on a horse, if you will, but he rode in with just humility on a donkey of all things. But then um, he would be arrested, and if you know your scriptures, and we'll look at this a little bit today, he would be arrested um, by the religious establishment of the day and, and those people that were just really in the ring leaders there for wanting to arrest Jesus that didn't like this upstart rabbi were Jewish individuals, Jewish people, if you will, from Jerusalem and they arrest Jesus, they take him into the house of Caiaphas. And there again, I think if you read through John's gospel, we see more than once that John's gospel just very plainly tells us that they didn't care for this upstart rabbi from Galilee of all places. He's from Galilee. 
and they didn't really care for him. So you really got two groups of people, one shouting out Hosanna, and, and I really think that was the majority. But then you got this, this small group, if you will, from Jerusalem, the, the, the religious folks, if you will, the religious establishment that wanted nothing but Jesus, wanted nothing good to do with Jesus, but wanted to, if anything, take him out. Isn't it amazing how just a small group of people, when they get in power, can just really change the direction of everything? It said that Hitler, when he rose to power, only had the, a 10% of the German people behind him. But look what he did with the 10% of the German people that just really aligned with him. The whole direction of their country changed. And, and let me just go off on another tangent in metal. That's why it's important for Christians to be involved in their community. And that's why it's important for Christians to, to run for public office because if good people do nothing, guess who will? Bad people will. Anyway, so Jesus wrote in knowing full well what was before him, knowing full well that he was the atoning sacrifice. And, and as he was going to the cross, he made seven statements. And we've kind of been looking at those seven statements for the past couple of weeks, and, and I kind of combined one and took some privilege there, if you will. But the first statement Jesus made, and I just want to rehash this because they're just so very important, and the videos the past couple of weeks, even the one today uh, that Gaynell found for us, is just really, really, I think, important. First was a word of forgiveness when Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they have no idea what they're doing. And yeah, I'm paraphrasing that. I kind of like to paraphrase that because in there are a number of ways you can say, Father, forgive them. They have no clue. Father, they have no idea what they're doing. Father, forgive them. And it's something he said over and over and over again, and that's how the Greek text is written. Over and over, the very first thing Jesus said was a word of forgiveness. And then the second statement Jesus made was a word of salvation. He said, truly, truly, today I tell you that, that you will be with me in what? Paradise. Yeah, you will be with me in paradise. Hmm. I'm looking forward to that. There again, the older I get, the sweeter it's going to be for me knowing that I'm going to paradise with Jesus. And then thirdly, he, he, he issued a word of provision. And, and what Jesus did there was even when he was on the cross, and, and I'll tell you what, if, if I'm suffering, if I'm going through just a little bit of what Jesus went through, if I'm in pain, if I'm in agony, be it spiritually, physically, or emotionally, I don't know if I would have the wherewithal to be thinking of somebody else other than me because I'm in pain. But Jesus is on the cross, and not only does he utter this word of forgiveness, the very first thing that comes out of his mouth, he, he utters this word of provision for his mother. So he says, Mother, be, behold your son. Son, looking at John, right? Looking at the disciple named John, and John likes to tell us, you know, I'm the one that Jesus loved. He loved all of them. But that's John's moniker, if you will. Bless his heart. <laughs> John said, be, or Jesus said, John, behold your mother. He's making provision for his mom. And you might be saying, well, well where's Jesus' siblings? Which is a very fair question to ask. In fact, we were, I was having that conversation this week. But we know probably at this time in her life, Mary was probably a widow because Joseph had mentioned for the longest time in Scripture. I mean, we don't really see anything about Joseph being mentioned in Scripture since, since Mary and Joseph left Jesus there at church. So I feel really good having left my kids on a number of occasions at church. If Mary and Joseph did it to Jesus, I think people can cut me some slack when I've left my kids at church as well. Now, they survived. They survived. But anyway, we really think Mary was a widow at this time. Um, but they had other children. I mean, Jesus had brothers and sisters that grew up with him. 
in the household of Mary and Joseph. But John chapter 7, verse 5. John 7, verse 5 tells us that Jesus' brothers didn't become believers until after the resurrection. So in all likelihood, they weren't even at the crucifixion of Jesus. So, so here's what Jesus was doing while he's in pain and agony. He's thinking of others. Hey, by the way, while he was on the cross, you were on his mind. But he was thinking also of his mom because as the oldest son in that household and as a devout Jew, which Jesus was, it was his cultural obligation as the oldest son to take care of his family. So even when he's on the cross, he's making a provision for his mother. He's like, hey, John, I want you to take care of, of my mom. And, and mother, I want you to, you, you just have it in your mind that John is your son and he's going to take care of you. And, and he did. You know, church history attests that John did that. A word of provision. And then Jesus had a word of suffering. And he quoted from Psalms 22 saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason we read that in Scripture, and I often think to our detriment, I think we read it with a Western mindset because we are people that were raised here in the West. Although I did meet somebody today from, or not today, this week from India, whose name was Israel, which is kind of unique. But I really think when we read Scripture, we come to it with, um, with a Western mindset. And, and I just want to rock your world for a little bit this morning before we get into the text. The reason we read and we, we think that, that Jesus was forsaken by God, uh, let me just tweak it, if you will. It wasn't that Jesus was forsaken by God, but the sin that was laid upon him, my sin and your sin, that's what God forsook. God is a holy God, and he cannot look upon sin. So because he is holy, he could not look upon the sin that Jesus bore, but he did not forsake God the Son. Let, let me just share this with you. I mean, if, back in, in, in the day, Jesus wouldn't tell you, hey, turn in your, turn in your, in your scriptures, you know, take your scroll out and turn with me to Psalms 22. Uh, there was no such thing as the 22nd chapter of Psalms. There was the book of Psalms, if you will, but, but you didn't have chapters and verses like that. <laughs> but when Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why did you forsake me? Uh, they would have known, oh, wait a minute, he's, he's quoting from, from Psalms. And they would have known, they would have, not, not like we do, but they would have known, oh, he's quoting from, uh, from Psalms 22, and, and the very next Psalm is Psalms 23. It's talking about the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. They would have also thought, if you're taking notes, write this down, they would have also thought of Ezekiel 34, which talks about how the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So I submit to you that God the Father did not forsake God the Son at his darkest moment. He forsook the sin that was laid upon Jesus, my sin and your sin, but he wouldn't forsake God the Son. Uh, he was with Moses. He didn't forsake Moses when Moses was the unelected leader, if you will, of of the Israelites. Uh, he didn't forsake Joshua during those frightening days of taking the promised land. He didn't forsake David as he fought Goliath. He was with, I submit to you, Hezekiah and Isaiah when Jerusalem was surrounded. God the Father was with Jeremiah and the exiles when Jerusalem lay in ruins. He was with Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace. In every case we read about in Scripture, in every promise we see, God the Father did not forsake those in whom he loved. And he won't forsake you either. That is my God. And Robert, to quote one of my favorite songwriters of today, Chris Tomlin, he is a good, good father. And with him being a good, good father, he's not going to forsake you. You might be unfaithful to him, but he's not going to be unfaithful to you. We didn't discuss the fifth statement. In fact, I just kind of 
really went over it fast. I thirst. But the sixth statement was, it is finished. And that means that the ransom, the ransom for our salvation, Jesus paid. It means that everything God the Father wanted God the Son to accomplish was done. It means that he was our atoning sacrifice. Jesus has paid it all. Therefore, all to him I what? Oh. It's a word of completion, if you will. So this morning, I want us to look at the last statement Jesus made, into your hands I commit my spirit. So your Bibles ought to be open by now, don't you think? To Psalms 23. And if they are, just look up there with me at verse 44, and let's read a couple of these verses, not just one, but let's read a couple of them, if you will. Luke 23, beginning at verse, let's go to verse 44. Y'all with me? Say amen if you are. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light fell. Isn't that a choice of words? While the sun's light fell. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And, and notice what happened to those that were around the cross. And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God. So even in death, something good can happen. The centurion praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breast, and all his, all, and all his acquaintances, rather, and the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Would you pray with me? Father, um, Thank you for, the, for your word today, for your people that's gathered here. Lord, speak to us now through your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, change us, transform us. Let us not leave this place as we entered it. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said amen. So let's talk about Jesus' death this morning. And I know nobody likes to talk about death, but let's talk about death this morning in particular the death of Jesus. And what does it mean when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit? Well, the first thing I want to share with you is the conquest of the Son. And keep your Bibles open there and, and make notes if the Spirit directs you. Verse 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. At this point in Jesus' life, he laid down his life. No one took it from him. Did y'all notice that in Scripture? Nobody took his life from him. He willingly laid down his life for you and for me. And in doing so, he conquers sin. Hey, praise God, he conquers Satan. And guess what else he's about to conquer? He's about to conquer death. Jesus, that's Jesus, and that's what he can do. He's a conqueror. You say, well, well how, how can he do all that? Because he is Lord. He's Jesus. I mean, think about this. How can demons tremble in his presence? How can demons be cast out? How can disease and death be, be healed by his power? How can the lame walking in the blind see? How can lepers be healed? How can the dead come to life again? Hey, one word, Jesus, right? He's a conqueror. And because he was totally in charge while on earth, he was even totally in charge even in his death. You know, sometimes, well, aren't we guilty of this? Sometimes we, are, we, we, can, we have a tendency to spend more than what we have in the bank, right? Yeah, kids do really do that when they're in college, right? And you know, if you've been there, done that, you, you probably know what I'm talking about there. Arthur Max Lucado, who's, who's, who's a great author, I, I love reading his books, tells the story of receiving an overdraft notice, not on his account, but on one of his daughter's accounts. 
and she was in college, but he kind of helped her manage her finances. And he noticed one day the bank called him or got in touch with him to say, hey, guess what? Your daughter, that precious little girl you raised, <laughs> has made an overdraft on her funds here. So, so what do you think Max Lucado did? I mean, this is Max Lucado, prolific author, great pastor, wonderful man of God. What do you think he did? Here's what he said. He, he, he thought about doing these couple of things, and, and I kind of like this because I thought, man, th this sounds like me. He could have done this, and he thought about this. He thought about sending her a disappointing letter, Carson, saying, I cannot believe you did this. How can you overdraft your bank account? He thought about sending her a letter that said that. He thought about sternly saying, yeah, y'all know how parents can do you. They look really stern. Don't they look, that's, that's my stern look. Are y'all somewhat fearful right now? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Tina laughs too when I look at her that way. And, and, and Lucado thought about sternly looking at his daughter one day and saying, don't let this happen again. And then he thought about phoning her to tell her, hey, um, you need to make a deposit because you've over, you've overdrawn your funds here. And he thought about all of those things, but none of those things would have satisfied the bank because y'all know what the bank's after. We need your money, honey. And so he, so he knew that. So he did what only a dad could do. He made a deposit for her. Listen to what he said. He said, since she calls me dad, I did what dads do. I met her need before she ever knew she had one. Amen. Hey, listen to this. this. This is cool. Long before you knew you needed grace. You hear me? Long before you knew you needed grace, God reached down to us in the form of Jesus. And he gave us. He provided for us what we, at the time, we didn't even know. So he's a conqueror, and we see that here in the text. And then something else we see, notice with me the committal, if you will, of his spirit. He says, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. And let's just, let, allow me, if you will, because I know nobody likes to talk about death. But man, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I see death in a whole different light. Do I mourn? Absolutely. But at the same time, I can see death in a, in a whole lot different light. And, and, and I want to kind of do that for you this morning because as a follower of Jesus, I know where I'm going. Y'all with me? I heard about some friends, and they were asking some, and I can, have a, I can imagine a conversation like this taking place at Mary's. We had a place in Hartsville, and it was a particular restaurant called Carolina Lunch. And at the time, they were only open for breakfast. Go figure. All right? And there was a place in the back there that, that we called the liar's table. I want you to know I never sat there. But I know some people that did, and I don't know if they were lying or not, but I hope not because most of them were in church to my knowledge. But, but I can imagine the conversation going like this. But uh, some friends were at a particular location, and they were talking about their death and wondering what people might say at their funeral. And one, of, one friend said, well, you know what? I, I would hope people will say, well, man, he, he loved his community. He was just there for his community. He was the biggest cheerleader of his community. He was just a great humanitarian. All right. And then the second guy said, and I, I kind of like this, the second guy said, well, you know what? I hope at my funeral people could say of me, uh, man, he was just a great family man. Loved his wife. Loved his kids. Never hardly ever missed one of their ball games. Just really was a picture of a family man. Maybe, maybe one of the greatest examples of a husband and a dad around. I, I kind of like that. And then the third guy said, well, you know, at my funeral, I hope somebody looks in the casket and say, hey, look, he's moving. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like that one too, don't you? <laughs> and man, I love this one. I can see one of my boys. I'm not going to tell you which one, but I can see one of my boys. This is a story about a, a dad and his son who was really young driving through the country one day and past one of these country cemeteries. I know what I'm talking about. 
My first church was in Saluda, and there were a lot of country cemeteries. In fact, to get to one of the cemeteries, you had to drive through somebody's backyard. But we did. But, uh, but man, I could, I could hear one of my kids saying something like this. But, he, but this little boy and his dad were driving one day on a Sunday afternoon drive, and they went past this country cemetery, and a grave had just been dug, and all the dirt had been piled up. And that little boy, as sweet as a little boy could do, said, Hey, Daddy, look, somebody got out. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I'm glad you're laughing, because I think we ought to be able to laugh. As a follower of Christ, I know where I'm going. Am I ready to die? No. Am I prepared? Absolutely. Because I know where I'm going, and, and I, I made, I've got reservations in heaven, if you will. So let me just ask this question of you, and, and I read about it this week, and then, I, and honest to goodness, I even heard another preacher saying almost the same thing that I want to share with you right now, but... but but I want to answer the question as briefly as I can. What is physical death? And some of y'all are going, duh, we know what it is. But let me humor your pastor, if you will. It is the separation of your soul and your spirit from your physical body. That's what physical death is. There's a spiritual death, and there's a second death, but that's a sermon for another day. Let's talk about a physical death. It's a separation of your spirit and your soul from your physical body. Woody Allen once said this. He said, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Well, guess what? There's going to be a day, unless the rapture takes place, that it's going to happen for you and for me. A day when our physical body will die and our soul and spirit will, will go on either in one or two places. And it's not Shiraz. It's either going to be heaven or hell. That's why you need to be prepared. Don't leave here today unless you know where you're going. James chapter 2, verse 26 says that the body without the spirit is dead. Over in Genesis chapter 35, when Rachel died, Rachel, the wife of Jacob, the patriarch, Genesis 35, 18 says that her soul departed. So it's a separation there. So whether, whether you're here today, and most of you, I know, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but whether you're here today and you believe him or not, death is inevitable. It cometh. So you know you can't control very much in your life. All of us know that. But here's what you can control. You can control whether or not you're prepared for when you die. And I hope you're prepared and that you are ready to meet Jesus now as opposed to later because death is coming. It's, it draweth nigh, like I said. April 15th does as well. I don't look forward to April 15th to y'all, but the older I get, the more I'm looking forward to whenever I get to go to my heavenly home. So what's it going to look like? What's it going to be like whenever your spirit departs from your body? It's either going to be a time of peace for you, or it can be a time of turmoil. It can be a time of fear. It can be a time of regret. It can also be a time of tears. Back in, um, in 2016, I'm going to shock some of you, but, but one of my stations on the radio <laughs> is I kind of like to listen to old music, and I mean like Frank Sinatra stuff. And some of y'all thinking, that's not old. I know, I know. But, but y'all remember, he, I think he passed away in 2016. And one of his famous songs, Old Blue Eyes Thing, was I Did It What? My Way. Y'all listen too, don't you? Yeah. And you know, I did it my way. Right? That sounded pretty good, Robert. Hey, that's a catchy phrase. But don't live your life your way. Live your life God's way. Because if you live your life God's way, you're going to be ready whenever death comes for you. And, and Jesus makes, this, makes it possible for us to go to heaven. 
It's a word of commitment here. And then thirdly, notice with me the compassion of the Father. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, Abba, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's, it's almost as though if you've got a glorified imagination like, like I do, whether it's good or bad, it's almost as if you can hear God the Father saying, that's enough. You have suffered enough. You have been spat upon enough. You've been beaten enough. You've been scorned enough. You've been mocked enough. Enough's enough. Come home. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Paid in full. Paid in full. Now let me transition, if you will, and I want to give you 10 facts, if you will, about death. And you'll be out of here by 3 o'clock, okay? Yeah, 10, 10 facts about death, and we're going we're to breeze through them, okay? Uh, number one, death comes from the fall. Why is there bad things in the world? Why, why, why do we have all these calamities taking place? Why is there all these isms in the world, if you will? Uh, the answer is one word, sin. And we see sin enter the picture from the garden. And one of the things that enters the picture because of sin is death. Death is the result of sin. The Bible says in Genesis 3:19, "By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Be blessed today. A, a theology professor of all people, only a theology professor, would walk into his class just about every day and, and, and talk to his class this way: "Hello, frail students of dust." That would never make my day if a theology professor would come in and say that. But just know that death comes from the fall. Number two, death is forthcoming. That's why you need to be prepared. It's on its way. Hebrews 9:37 says, And just as it is appointed for a man a time to die, after that comes the judgment. Can I just tell you this? There is no such thing as reincarnation. You say, How do you know? It's not in Scripture. There is no such thing as purgatory. So, whoa, 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 how do you know that? Guess what? It's not in Scripture. That's why you got to be ready. Death is forthcoming, so you got to be prepared. And then number three, death is final. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, you're not going to be in your physical body anymore. Now, hey, one day, guess what? I'm gonna be, I've got a glorified body one day coming to me, and, man, I'm going to look better than ever. No double chin. That's supposed to be a joke. I mean, really, I'm going to have a whole brand new body, a glorified, a holy body, because my body now is plagued by sin in more ways than one. You say, well, wait a minute, I don't know if I like the fact that death is final. I've got vacation scheduled for this summer. Uh, tough. I've got football season to look forward to. Are you a Gamecock fan? Come on, I am. I feel your pain. But death is final, so you've got to be prepared. Number four, death is faithful. When you die, your spirit and your soul keeps on a trucking. That's not in Scripture either, but that sounds pretty good. When you die, your life will continue in either one or two places, heaven or hell. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Jesus says in Matthew 25.46, And these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous will enter into eternal life. Hmm. There's a finality to death. And then number five, Death is, death is fair. Yeah. Death really is fair. Genesis 2.17 says, But of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And he's talking to Adam and Eve, right? You shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you shall eat it on that particular day, you shall die. Adam and Eve were forewarned. It's not like they were going, Huh, what would happen if we eat that? Hmm. Not heartburn, but death. 
They, they were for, y'all with me? They were forewarned. Paul made this famous statement in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. And by the way, some of y'all know that. Y'all are quoting the rest of the verse in your mind right now. But if that verse ended with a period, there ain't no sense in us being here today. But there's a comma there. Thank the Lord for a comma because but the gift of God is what? Eternal life through Christ Jesus. Through Jesus. Mm -mm. The judge of all the earth will do right. Now, all these things, you look at these things, you're like, man, that's just kind of depressing, right? Man, golly, Moses, I got the rest of the day to live out. Man, these are just depressing. Well, let me give you some good news about death. Here's, here's one. Death offers freedom. <laughs> I, I love the verses about the poor man who sat outside the rich man's gate, and, and it's over in Luke 16. Let me read you this passage. It's not long, but um, this is not Lazarus of Bethany. This is another man named Lazarus. And at the gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. And then it gets kind of gruesome here. Gets, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, this is just how bad he was physically. It, the Bible says that the dogs would come and lick his sores. And then verse 22 of Luke 16, the Bible says, The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment... If you ever wonder what Hades is like, that's one thing it's like, being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now, now just get this. The poor man was carried by angels. Right? What a, what a beautiful thought to know that when you die, angels are going to carry you to heaven. Touched by an angel, if you will. Mine's going to look like Roman Downey. I really believe with all my heart if y'all watch that TV show. Uh, y'all laugh, no, y'all smile. I love y'all. We sing, oh, come angel band, come around me, stand. Angels are going to usher us into the presence of glory. The poor man didn't have anything on the earth, right? But he had everything in the Lord. He knew the Lord, so therefore he goes to heaven. But the rich man had everything the earth could offer, all the pleasures, all the glory that this world could give him. But he didn't know the Lord. Where does he find himself? But he finds himself eternally separated from him. But if you know Jesus, he offers you freedom. And that's something to say amen about, right? Amen? So, so death offers us freedom. Death also, also offers us fulfillment. I believe Paul wrote this. Shortly before he died, words from 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, we don't talk like that anymore. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all to those who love his appearance. So, so Paul wrote that, and I really think he was writing it even to me and to you, saying that you're saved not by your righteousness, but by his righteousness. The psalmist wrote that when you're walking with the Lord, you're walking in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. So, so death really does offer us a fulfilling reward, if you will. We get to be with, with Jesus. And then number eight here, if you're keeping count here, death can be fearless. David said in Psalms 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and by the way, it really is a place. 
Not only physically, but y'all know what it's like to even go through that emotionally and spiritually. But physically, as a shepherd, he knew exactly what that place was and where it was located. Such a deep valley it was that it was almost like even at noonday sun, when the sun is at its brightest, if you're walking through that particular physical valley, it was dark. That's where all the robbers were. You, you feared if you walked through that valley. But David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you, Jeho Jehovah Shammai, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So you don't have to fear death. If you know Jesus, you don't have to fear death. I heard about a story about a, about a fellow that went to the doctor, and uh, he had some blood work done, and, and the doctor said, we'll give you a call in a few days to tell you how uh, the results of your blood work. And a few days pass, and he finally gets a hold of his patient. He's like, I got some, some bad news, and I got some worse news. And the guy's like, man, I can't believe it. Well, what do you got for me? He's like, well, let me give you the bad news first. We've been trying to, uh, we, we just want you to know that, that in 48 hours, we expect you to be dead. He's like, man, that's, that's terrible news. That's, that's bad news. What's, what's the worst news? And the doctor said, we've been trying to call you for 24 hours. <laughs> hey, listen, you don't have to fear death. Gosh, see me, Robert, or train before you leave. You do not have to fear death. That's why Jesus went to the cross for you. Praise the Lord. So you can either, you can either face death with fear or with faith. Number nine death offers fellowship man there's going to be a reunion one day in heaven y'all remember the old church reunions we used to have bring out all the fried chicken you know macaroni and cheese green beans y'all getting hungry biscuits syrup and all that stuff good old church fellowships done the baptist way right if you feed them they will come death offers a fellowship there's going to be a day when we get to heaven we're going to run into our loved ones and guess what they're going to know you and you're going to know them and what a sweet reunion that's going to be in the great by and by i'm looking forward one day to seeing people i know and love that are now in heaven what a what a great fellowship that's going to be death offers fellowship and then last death faces a future <laughs> This is when I want you to be turning to Revelation. And as you turn to Revelation, let me read to you what 1 Corinthians 15 says. Death's not always going to be around. Death, death's on its way out. What's the future of death? You're turning to Revelation, but if you're, if you're able to do two things at once, you can write down this passage. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25 says, For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. I tell you again, death's on its way out. But listen to what Revelation 20, chapter 20, verses 13 and following says. This tells us the future death faces. And the sea, Revelation 20, verses 13 and following, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, and each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. I share this passage with you because death is going to die. It's not going to hurt us anymore. It's not going to harm the ones we love anymore. That's because the future of death is death. Why is that? Because that's what Jesus went to the cross for. So that death can be put to death forever. You probably have heard this name before. His name was Gandhi. Gandhi wasn't from around here, right? But he was a great political figure, if you will. Uh, he was a spiritual leader of, of India. And for most of his life, he, he would say, hey, I'm not afraid to die. And you would want a spiritual leader to tell you that, right? 
to assure you, hey, I'm not afraid to die. I practice Hinduism, and by the way, I'm not afraid to die. And he would boast, and, and, I, and I quote, he said, he said, I must tell you that in all humility that Hinduism, as I know it, entirely satisfies my soul and fills my whole being. He, he went on, this is Gandhi now, right? He goes on to say, I find a solace in the philosophies and teaching of Hinduism that I miss even in the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus. But before he died, listen to what he said. He wasn't bragging on Hinduism then. He said, my days are numbered. I'm not likely to live very long. For the first time in 50 years, I find myself in the slew of despond. All about me is darkness, and I'm praying for the light. What a contrast between somebody that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus and then somebody like you and me that has a relationship with Jesus has when it comes to our death. That's why Jesus went to the cross. And it's why it was a word of commitment. It's why it was a word of completion. Let me ask you to bow your head. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father God, as we sing um, a closing song, Lord, I pray that if there's someone here that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that this might be the day of their salvation. Lord, I don't want them to fear death. I certainly don't want anybody here or anybody that might be watching us somehow on the web to think that they've got their entire life to get ready for heaven. But what they need to do is get ready for heaven today to accept what you did on the cross for them. So if you never have asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, would you pray this prayer? Dear, dear Heavenly Father, I know I'm a sinner and I believe that Jesus died to forgive me of my sins on the cross and as much as I can I accept your offer of eternal life thank you for forgiving me of all of my sins past, present and future thank you for the new life that you give me through Jesus and Lord from this day forward help me to live my life for him if you pray that prayer I want you to know that God heard it if you sincerely pray that prayer God hears that prayer and you now are part of his family you now have eternity waiting for you in a place called heaven instead of in a place called hell. You know that great spiritual leader in India, Gandhi? He may have been sincere, but man, he looked for his sincerity in all the wrong places. And if you're looking for salvation today, you, there's only one person you can look, and that's to Jesus. You look to him, and only Jesus can save you. And I guarantee you, as a sinner saved by grace, if you look to Jesus and let him be the Lord of your life, you don't have to face death with fear because Jesus made a provision for you. Father, thank you for speaking to us today. Lord, I have no idea what you want to do as a result of this message. It might be days. It could be years from now before we know what you've done in the hearts of people here. But Lord, I really feel that you've drawn people to you today. Lord, save them. Don't let anybody leave here that doesn't know you as the Lord and Savior. Lord, for those that are like me and we've got eternity in heaven waiting on my waiting for us. Lord, give us some boldness to tell others what you mean for, to, to us. Father, we love you. We praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. Let me ask you to stand to your feet. We're